man, that song's so good. I could just get up here and, and say, all right, we're good. We're done for the day. Go have lunch. But I'm not going to do that because I don't get many chances to preach up here because these two pastors that we have that are incredible teachers are always um, leading us week after week. And so like Kyle mentioned a few weeks ago, we're like here standing at the edge of the table being like dogs waiting for the breadcrumbs to fall. It's just like, come on, just give us one shot, just one shot. Um, so today is my shot and I am, I am so excited. This is the first time I've gotten to preach since I've been a married man. So that's awesome. I'm excited about that. Very grateful for that. And, uh, and I'm really, really, really excited uh, about the text that we're gonna be looking at today. Now, when Colby uh, told me I was gonna get to preach, I was like, on the outside, I was like, okay, that's great. On the inside, I'm like, yes, <laughs> finally get my shot, finally here. So I'm like, I am pumped. And then he's like, but you're not gonna preach from Romans. And I'm like, okay. And on the inside, I'm like, <laughs> Colby hates me. <laughs> and then he told me, but here's why you're not gonna preach from Romans. You're not gonna preach from Romans because we're gonna finish up Romans chapter eight and you'll be preaching from Romans chapter nine, which if you're familiar with is a very heavy chapter of the Bible. And so on the outside, again, I was like, oh, that makes sense. On the inside, I'm like, man, gosh, I dodged one there. So today, um, Colby, you may not realize the emotional roller coaster you took me on when you got to tell me that I was gonna get to preach, but it was certainly one that I went through. But the text that we're gonna look at today, I think is an incredible text that the Lord led me to. Uh, and, and I think it has a, a phenomenal message I mentioned earlier for our graduates, but also for every single one of us in this room. And so, we're going to open your Bibles, if you will, um, to, to, if you already haven't already, uh, to Philippians chapter three. And while you're turning there or while you're um, waiting for other people beside you to turn there, um, I just kind of want to set up the context of what's going on in the verse we're going to look up today. So Paul is writing again to the church in Philippi, and he is writing from Roman prison, and he is probably chained to a guard, as he mentions in chapter one. But he's writing in these verses specifically about something that's going on for the Philippians. There is a group called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers are telling the Philippians, most of whom are Gentile believers, Gentile followers of Jesus. These Judaizers have been telling them, in order for you to truly find salvation, not only do you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to keep the law of Moses. You need to keep the Old Testament law. That means you need to keep all the customs. That means you need to do all these things in addition to believing in Jesus. And while at first glance, that may not seem to have a whole lot to do with us today. After all, it is written many thousand, like a thousand years ago, over a thousand years ago. And it is also seems to be something that doesn't necessarily deal with us. What truth Paul says to them in these verses, verses four through 11, has incredible implications for our lives as well. And so, if you will, follow along in your copy of God's word with me as I read for us uh, Philippians chapter three, verses four through 11. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Will you pray with me? Father, as we have opened your word now and as we will dive into its truth today, God, would you open our eyes to see um, the beauty of Jesus, the glory of you in Jesus. God, would you use the words that come from my mouth, God, to point to Christ, to encourage us to value Jesus above everything else today and every day that we live. May you receive glory. May your church receive good. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do today in our hearts and in our lives. Amen. So if you are following along in your outline there, let's jump right into it. And the first thing that we want to see is this. Human culture values who we are and what we have done. It's a very simple thing um, that, that human culture does. And we, see, we can see this. Anybody ever seen the show America's Got Talent? Anybody ever seen this? Or some show like it? There's, of course, American Idol. There's all these shows. And and America's Got Talent, the reason I mention it specifically is because when someone comes on stage, a lot of times, I mean, if they're holding a microphone, you might be like, oh, they're going to do something with their mouth. If they're like wearing like a leotard, they might be going to do dancing of some sort. If they're coming up with a guitar, they're like going to play the instrument. But usually what happens is the judges, one of the judges will ask them, who are you and what do you do? Who are you and what do you do? And honestly, that's, we, we do the exact same thing in our, in our daily lives. When we're getting to know someone, what do we do? Ask them their name, ask them where they're from, ask them if they're in school. If you're a college student, you get that all the time. What are you studying? Um, So we do this in our own daily lives. Another way that we do it is in resumes. And now resumes is what we kind of have before us here today from Paul. Verses four through six, Paul is gonna lay out a list of about seven things that are essentially his resume as a, Jude, as a um, Pharisee and a follower of Judaism. He's gonna lay it out for us. And what he tells us here, he's telling us who he is, or we should say who he was and what he had done. And the first three things kind of give us what he, who he is. He's saying, this is who I am. He says, first, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now that's kind of weird for the first thing he goes to, but it begins showing us that his family was deeply devout to Jewish heritage and customs. He was born right into this keeping of the law, this keeping of this customs, this keeping of the traditions of his father. Baby boys, according to Old Testament law, were to be circumcised on the eighth day of their life. And so Paul's saying here, right here, beginning of it, my parents made sure that I was steeped in these traditions. He'd go on to say then, I'm of the people of Israel. Now, In this time, um, the Judaizers, if we go back to that specific context in history, the Judaizers, most of whom, uh, most of them couldn't even actually trace their lineage specifically back to Israel. A lot of them were Gentiles. And here they are saying, but you've got to keep the Jewish law. 
And Paul's like saying, look, I've got more credit than they do. I'm an actual Israelite, pure bread, pure blood. I can trace my history all the way back to the nation of Israel. And then he goes on not only to say that, but second, after that, he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that may just be like, okay, you know what tribe you are, but that's a big deal because here's the thing. In the dispersion on the times when um, the Jewish kingdom, the Hebrews, the Israelites were conquered, they were scattered out throughout Asia Minor and throughout that area of what is now present-day Palestine. And a lot of them through intermarriage and different things, records being lost, a lot of them couldn't prove their heritage. A lot of them didn't know their heritage. They knew I'm somehow connected because my great, 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 great daddy was like in something, but I don't know, and it gets all, it's all muddied. And so for Paul to be able to say, I can trace my line all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin, to one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, to pause there for a second, Jacob, again, was a man who had 12 sons and who later in his life, God changed his name to Israel. That is where the nation of Israel came from, the people who were oppressed by the Egyptians and who became what we now know as the nation of Israel. 12 sons became 12 families, became 12 tribes to make up a nation. And of those, Benjamin was the youngest. Benjamin was a favorite son of Jacob. He was the only son born in the promised land. And he was also born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. It was actually the son, sadly enough, that Rachel died giving birth to. But Benjamin was special to Jacob. He was highly revered among the tribes of Israel. So to be a Benjamite was a big deal. Saul, the very first king of Israel, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Mordecai and Esther, who God used during the time of the Persian rule in Israel and their their oppression of Israel, actually used Mordecai and Esther to preserve the Israelite nation by not allowing Haman to commit his great travesty of trying to destroy all the Jews. The tribe of Benjamin was highly respected and highly honored historically in Israel. But just the fact that he can trace his line all the way back, that would be like somebody today saying, I can trace my line all the way back to Alexander the Great. It's a big statement. If you do have all that history, and we know from scripture that genealogy matters. And we see it in the life of Christ. We see it throughout scripture. Genealogies matter. And Paul is saying here, look, I've got it. I can show you the papers. I can prove to you who I am. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes on and moves from there to say, here's what I've done too. Not only is this who I am, which I'm basically from the perfect Jewish family, if you didn't catch that. Paul is saying also, here's what I've done. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, Paul, Paul is not born in Israel. He was born in Tarsus. We know him as Saul of Tarsus. And that was a city in Asia Minor. And so he was not born in Israel, but he quickly, at a young age, he moved to Jerusalem and began studying under Gamaliel and became, we know we're going to look at how he says he became a Pharisee and all these things, but he was not born there. So imagine this, if you um, were a Bama fan living in Knoxville, Tennessee, where the University of Tennessee is, and you kept your crimson and white through and through and were not affected by the orange and white that was surrounding you in that culture, that would be kind of what Paul is saying. He's like, look, I grew up, I was born into this, which by the way, I grew up a Tennessee fan and was proudly converted to the University of Alabama after coming here and being around the culture. But Paul's saying, I was surrounded by that Greco-Roman culture and me and my family were not tainted by it. 
we stayed true to the Jewish law, the Jewish traditions, the Jewish, Jewish culture. And in fact, in Galatians 1.14, Paul says this, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He had a zeal, which we're gonna look at here in just a second, but Paul was deeply devoted to that and nothing was gonna sway him from it. Nothing in this world was gonna sway him from it. And so we move on to his next and then his last here in just a second, things that he's listing out. This is what I've done. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Now, Paul was indeed so zealous for his faith that he actually pursued his heritage to the point that he became a member of the most religious, the most devout sect of Judaism um, that there was back in that time. The Pharisees, we know them from Jesus' teaching, how Jesus said the Pharisees are basically um, the, the, the holiest of them. And if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you better have a holiness that even succeeds theirs. And for people that Jesus said that to, they'd be like, what? Nobody's more holy than the Pharisees. Nobody adheres to the law more than the Pharisees. And you didn't just get to come one day and say like, I'm a Pharisee. It didn't happen that way. Your credentials, your who you are and what you had done had to make you qualified to become one of those Pharisees. And during that time, there was only about 6,000 people, according to the writings of Josephus, who were considered to be Pharisees. And yet that relatively small group of people had more influence on the common people when it came to the Jewish religion than anyone else. They had a huge issue. So for, for those of you who are in school still or were in school back then, this is like the most prestigious honor society there is out there. You don't just get to come to say, declare, hey, I've got a one point, wait, nope, a 0.08 GPA and I'm gonna be in the honor society. It didn't work that way. Who you were and what you did mattered. And it mattered if you were gonna be a Pharisee. And he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he says, as to zeal, next in here, he says, a persecutor of the church. See, Jews viewed zeal or what we might say extreme or driving passion for something, they viewed that as the greatest religious virtue, the greatest religious virtue. And so not only did Paul commit his life to keeping Mosaic law and the rabbinic traditions, he also zealously sought to put an end to the movement of the people who followed Jesus. He devoted his life to it. That's what his pursuit was. This might be, if you were looking at his resume, his work experience or his community involvement, was I'm gonna do a service to my people and I'm gonna eradicate this, this thing they call the way, this thing they call Christianity. I'm gonna wipe it out and God will be pleased with my life because of who I am and what I'm doing. And it meant that he had to sell, uh, to be completely zealous in this and not waver in it. He hated the church and Christianity. And again, zeal is this thing of love for God, but also hate for anything that offends God. And so Paul in his misguided love for God saw hatred towards the church of Jesus Christ. But then finally he says on his resume, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is so bold in his keeping outwardly of the Mosaic or Old Testament law that he said, I'm blameless. You can't look at my life and say one thing that I've done to disobey this law. Not one thing. And 
in case we, we, we don't exactly know what that is, it's not just the Ten Commandments. That would be difficult enough because we all know from our personal experience, none of us keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. But here's the thing. 613 laws from Scripture, he says, blameless. Plus, hundreds more laws that the rabbis, the teachers of that day, who sought to, they said, put a fence around God's law so that you never even get close to breaking God's law. We're going to put a fence around it with other things, other traditions that we have to keep as well to make sure we're holy enough and pleasing enough to God. And he says, all those, blameless. Anything about my life that you could look at outwardly, blameless. He had perfectly kept all the rules. Paul seemingly had it all in his context. When it came to Jewish religion, Paul seemed, he had it all. A perfect resume. It was his, if his goal in life was to become righteous under the law, he had, he had achieved it. He had achieved it. He was kind of like that person that we all know who, or we maybe went to school with, or maybe currently go to school with, who was from the perfect family and made perfect grades and was the star athlete and who honestly just made us want to throw up. That was Paul back in his day. That was who he was. And those of you who are graduates, y'all may be like, man, this, this whole thing like resumes and talking about this stuff is just kind of like stressing me out. You may not have had to do a resume. You may be doing one, but you know this. If those of you who are going to be pursuing um, further education, you know that your grades matter. You have to have a certain GPA. Your courses matter. You have to finish all your courses. Um, some people cut it a little closer than others sometimes, but you have to finish all your courses one way or another. Um, college students know C's get degrees, right? You know, you cut a little closer than others, but you have to meet these requirements. And if you're planning on going to college, you either got to get a scholarship, you got to have money to get in and pay for your schooling. You have to make a certain score on the ACT. All these things are who you are and what you've done. That's what our culture looks like. That's what our culture lifts up and what it values. And those of you who are out in the workforce already, who have started careers, Maybe you've been applying for a specific job or maybe you've been applying for a promotion or something. You know that who you are and what you do matters in this culture. It's very, it's very clear. Artists have to have a portfolio of their art. You can't just say, I'm an artist. What have you done? I'll get to that later. It doesn't work that way. Basketball players that want to go to the NBA have to have certain stats or you're not going to make it. Just plain and simple. Who you are, what have you done? And so the same thing happens. Everything we wish to achieve in this world asks that question. Who are you and what can you do? What have you done? And here's the thing. Within every single one of us today, there is a longing because of that question. And here's what that longing does. It does one of two things. It either causes us to be driven to prove ourselves or it causes us, causes us to be in despair because we don't feel like we can prove ourselves. This is true of all of us. Every single one of us, there is a longing within us. And here's the thing. The reason why is that human culture, human nature, in fact, values who we are and what we can do, what we have done. But here's the second point that we're gonna look at in our outline today. There's a reality that we have to come to grips with. And that is this, that neither who we are, nor what we've done, nor anything else in all the world can satisfy this longing. It can't happen. 
And for some of us, and some of you sitting out there today, you know this very well. You're completely dissatisfied with your life as it is right now. And you pursue one thing and it leaves you empty. You pursue another thing and it leaves you empty. One relationship, empty. Another relationship, empty. Something has got to fill this, but I still feel dissatisfied. I still have not found what I'm looking for. You two wrote a song about that. It's a really good song. But we still haven't found what it is that we're looking for. Some of you know this completely well. And if we go back to the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes, we see that Solomon, the wisest man the Bible tells us who ever lived on the earth, he figured that out. It took him a while, but he figured it out. In Ecclesiastes 1, verses 8 and 9, he writes, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Talk about Debbie Downer. But then he goes on in verse 14 to then say this. He sums it all up. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Wow. Thanks for the pick-me-up talk, Solomon. Motivational speaker number one right there, right? But here's the thing. Solomon had pursued everything there was. He said, I didn't give myself any restrictions. Nothing. I pursued relationships. I pursued sex. I pursued partying. I pursued work. I pursued anything that my heart so desired. And I set my mind on it. If it was a second and I thought I wanted it, I went and got it. And everything left me empty. Everything. And so some of y'all understand that. You understand that there is no amount of money, no amount of pleasure, no amount of partying, no amount of accomplishments, no amount of sex or possessions that will ever satisfy you because you've tried it. And you get that. And yet for many of you and for many of us here today, here's the other thing. That may not be really your experience. You may be like, well, I'm actually totally satisfied with my life. I think it's, I think it's pretty great right now, actually. And Paul would have said the same thing. When he was Saul, before God changed his name, before, and I know y'all are like, get to Acts 9, Jared. I'm preaching this sermon, so y'all chill out that you're already there. Paul would have said, I had it all. I had everything my heart could desire. I had done everything that I wanted to do to try to please God. He was satisfied. And so some of y'all, you understand what this is like. You're sitting there and you're like, my life's great. I really, I can't complain. You, you kind of go, go along with a song that Zach Brown wrote, country artist, if you don't know. And he's, uh, it's called Homegrown, so you know the song. But for those of you who don't, he sings aloud all these things that he enjoys about life. From just having a great little piece of property that he lives on to going down and hanging out with his friends down at, um, by the river with a campfire. He sings about all these things. And then at the end of the chorus, there's one line that probably those of you know can, can quote it with me. He says, I've got Okay, nobody knows it. Everything I need and nothing that I don't. Everything I need, nothing to do. Nothing. I don't have anything else I need. Now, we won't go into the fact that he mentions God nowhere in that song. And I, I'm, I'll be honest, I like the song. It's a catchy little song. I enjoy listening to it. That's the way we live a lot of our lives. We've chased after things so much. Let me tell you a quick story about me. When I, if those of y'all know, I'm a type one diabetic and growing up, that meant I didn't get to have a whole lot of sugar. 
Um, cause sugar's like death to you if you're a type one diabetic, not really, but I couldn't just go out and have it whenever I wanted. So I grew up, um, from the time I was two years old and diagnosed to the time I was probably about 12 for about 10 years, I grew up just drinking diet sodas. And some of y'all are like, yeah, I love diet. And other y'all are like, Ugh, you just threw up in your mouth a little bit. Well, let me tell you, I never had a regular soda. I grew up when I was a baby, I drank juice. I liked apple juice and that was my thing. That was my jam. And then it got taken away from me. Oh, no, just kidding. Don't, don't pity. Um, God has used that in awesome ways for my life. But here's the point. I never had regular soda until one day my go-to when I, my blood sugar was low was, was some type of juice. It wasn't there. Didn't have it. All that was available was this little can of Mountain Dew. <laughs> I've been drinking Diet Mountain Dew for quite a while. And I cracked that thing open and took a swig and it was like, ah! it was unbelievable. It was so good. I was like, how did I ever drink that urine water over there and compared to this incredible drink that God is giving to me? Now, it changed, it was a whole other level when I hit code red Mountain Dew, but Mountain Dew changed my life there as a preteen teenager. And you're asking, Jared, why are you telling me this story other than to try to make me laugh? Well, that's part of it, but here's the thing. Here's what I want us to see. And here's what I think this song tells us as well. We can settle for things for so long that we actually convince ourselves that they are satisfying us. We can settle for lesser things for so long that they, we, we convince ourselves that they are gonna satisfy us. Man, and you know how I know this? I know this because God has wired us to worship. God wired us to worship him, but when that relationship was cut off and we were broken, guess what? We are so bent towards worship that we'll take anything and we'll start worshiping it. It's true. And so often we'll find ourselves worshiping things that are lesser, I've quoted this before, but um, I'm going to do it again just because it's such a great quote. In, in his book, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory, um, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he says this, he says, we are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. And see, here's the thing. Much of what God has given us and what we settle for thinking it's satisfying us, much of that is a good gift from God. Family, success, accomplishments, relationships, even comfort, the comfort of our homes, the comfort of our financial position. They're good things from God, but they are not ultimate things. And so easily and so quickly, we turn them into those ultimate things. And Jesus warned us about idolizing these things. In Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your, heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, when something captures our heart, it easily and very quickly becomes a thing that we think will fully and finally and ultimately satisfy us. And we give our heart to it. For Paul, this was a life of zealous self-righteousness under the law. But in verse seven and eight, Paul goes on to say that all these things that he had gained for himself, he would gladly give up. He counted them as loss. All these things that he had checked off as wins in his life, he now says those are losses. He's not saying they're bad in and of themselves. He's just saying they could not accomplish what I was trying to place on them for myself. They cannot accomplish your salvation. They could not satisfy. They could not satisfy my heart and they could not satisfy the wrath of God. They could not make Paul right with him. And he says now that he counts everything else a loss and considers them as rubbish. It's a very strong Greek word that I'll let you do your own research on. Rubbish compared to what he had found in Jesus Christ. He thought he had it all until one day on a mission of zeal to Damascus, he met Jesus and everything changed. And that leads us to our third and final point today. And that is that the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is the only place our longing can be satisfied. Here's where I want us to really press in and see the truth of God's word today for our lives. When Paul met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, what mattered most to Paul was no longer who he was and what he had done. It was who Jesus is and what he had done. What he had done that Paul could not do. What he had done that you and I could never do. In Philippians 3, the second half of verse 8 to verse 11, Paul says what matters now is that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And we can all be like, I'm on board with that. Yeah, right? We can get on board with that. Then he goes on to say something that's a little more stinging. He says, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Mm, That one doesn't go down quite as easy. Now let's just hit pause for a second and consider though, because we could quickly skim over this and miss what Paul is saying about this. We know he said, I will consider all these things. I would gladly give them up. I would trade it all to have Jesus. But he says, not only would I trade it all to have Jesus, I would gladly suffer for the sake of having Jesus. And to understand what Paul really meant by that suffering, we need to turn over to 2 Corinthians. In chapter 11 there, and 2 Corinthians, first of all, was written about five to seven years before Paul wrote this to the Philippians. So everything that Paul's about to describe had already happened to him. And in those five to seven years, I promise you more had happened to Paul in the way of sufferings. But here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, 
and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul had suffered for the sake of Jesus. And God had promised that in Acts chapter nine. He told Ananias, he's a chosen instrument of mine and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And yet here in Philippians chapter three, Paul's saying, it doesn't matter. It's worth it. A thousand times over, it is still worth it. Not only would he trade the life that for that he thought mattered more than anything else. He would gladly share in the sufferings and even the death of Jesus Christ if that's what it took for him to have Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. But why would Paul make such a ridiculous seemingly statement? What would cause that? How could Paul make such a 180 turn? And I know the answer again, Acts 9. Yeah, he met Jesus. He did. But what did he see in Jesus? And to answer this, we are going to make a quantum leap. Okay, so those of you who have seen the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie, there's like, um, they're only supposed to make 50 jumps um, if you're a human and they make 700 jumps. That's kind of what we're about to do here in scripture. But we're going to jump over to Exodus chapter 33. Because here's what we find and what Paul found in Acts chapter 9 is that Paul had come face to face with the glory of God in the, in the, in the risen Jesus Christ. And we, we use the term of glory, the glory of God quite flippantly sometimes, I think. The glory of God, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. But what does that mean? The glory of God has to be a big deal. It's talked about throughout scripture. What does it mean? Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses says this. He says to the Lord, show me your glory. Lord, will you show me your glory? Now, time out, time out, time out. Moses here now on Mount Sinai is saying, Show me your glory. What about the burning bush, Moses? What about the 10 plagues, Moses? What about the exodus from Egypt where these people who hated you blessed you with silver and gold, Moses? What about the pillar of cloud that led you by day and the pillar of fire that led you by night, Moses? What about the parting of the Red Sea, Moses? What about the bitter water at Marah made to be sweet water that you could drink? What about the manna and the quail provided so that we would have food? What about the rock that gave forth water? What about the shaking and quaking from the fire and smoke that came down on the mountain at Mount Sinai? Had Moses not seen the glory of God? In fact, Exodus 24, 17 says that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. What would you and I have done if we had seen any of those things? Besides maybe pee in our pants. We would have said, 
this is the glory of the Lord. We've seen the glory of God, but something in Moses' heart said, I haven't seen it yet. He said, Lord, show me your glory. And yet the Lord responds in verses 19 and 20 and says this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see my face and live. Moses did not see the fullness of the glory of God that day on Mount Sinai. But the scripture that Keith read for us earlier today, Moses and Elijah saw the glory of the Lord on a different mountain. When Jesus, the Messiah, was transfixed before their eyes, they saw the full glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. Where we see God's glory is this. John 1.14 says, to, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And we go on in verses 16 and eight to 18 of, verse, of John chapter one. It says, for from his fullness, from Jesus' fullness, the fullness of the glory of God, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Sound familiar, Exodus 33? You can't look at my face, Moses. No one has ever seen God who is at the, but this, the only God who's at the Father's side, that is Jesus Christ, he has made him known. Jesus Christ has perfectly and fully revealed the glory of God to all people through the gospel. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. Moses and Elijah saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Roman soldier saw it at the cross when he looked at it and said, surely by the way he has died, this man was the son of God. Mary saw it in the garden when she encountered the risen Jesus. The apostle Paul saw it on the road to Damascus and the apostle John saw it when he described in Revelation 1, 12 through 18, saying, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I had the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. And just like all these saw that, 
you and I have the opportunity to see it too when we look in faith to Jesus. We turn from our sin and we follow him. For Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse six, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is Jesus Christ. He is greater than all that Moses witnessed in Exodus. He is greater than all the self-righteousness Paul had accumulated and worked for. And he's greater than anything else that you and I would give our hearts to to live for, that we would settle for in this life. And to turn away from him and to take something else is to deny that and to completely miss who Jesus is. Jesus cannot be an add-on. He must be everything. Jesus lived the perfect life that pleases God that you and I couldn't live. He died a substitutionary death on a cross in your place and in my place to pay a debt that we couldn't pay. He was dead in the grave for three days, but then rose again and defeated sin and defeated death and defeated hell for you and for me. And he's now at the right hand of God on high, praying for you and for me. And one day, one glorious day, Jesus is coming again and he will establish his kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. And it will last forever and there will no longer be pain. There will no longer be sin. There will no longer be sickness. There will be no longer rape. There will no longer be murder. There will no longer be abuse. There will no longer be cancer. There will be no more death because he will have wiped it all away. And he has invited you and me to be with him in this kingdom forever. So I'm gonna close with one question. Will you look to Jesus and see his glory? Or will you turn away and settle for something that is rubbish in comparison? Will we look to Jesus and see that there is nothing else more glorious, nothing else more to be desired. Will we turn and settle for something that leads only to death? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.